DEA Field Guide 2020 podcast series. This is a special limited edition podcast series of four interviews commissioned by Creative New Zealand as a part of the DEA Field Guide 2020, a look into New Zealand's post-COVID design practice. In this special series, we'll hear from leaders in the New Zealand design community and further our discourse around the creative and economic well-being of our community, identify opportunities for positive change, speculate on the future of our practice, and critically examine the post-COVID design landscape in Aotearoa. Tēnā koutoa, I'm Louise, Design Assembly founder and director, and today I'm talking to Carl Wixon. Carl Wixon is the director of Arahia, in which he works as a Māori co-design facilitator to weave together complex collaborations spanning cultures, sectors, entities and interests to develop shared visions, find direction and co-design solutions. Carl has held a number of leadership roles in the past, President of the Designers Institute of New Zealand, a founder of Nahu Inc. Māori Design Society, a member of the New Zealand Story Advisory Board responsible for how New Zealand projects itself in offshore markets, and a member of, of Te Mana Whakahare, the Go- Governing Council of Te Whananga Aotearoa. Kia ora, Carl. Thanks very much for joining me today. And we're here to examine, reflect and discuss the impact of COVID-19 on Aotearoa New Zealand design practice. But before we do that, I'd love to hear more about you, um, your background, where you've come from um, and how you came to design. Kia ora, e mihi nui Ki te tātoko hākoro ko waitaha kā te māmo e kaitahu me Moriori oke iwi, ki te tātoko te hākui ko Ngāti Tōranga te rata iwi. So, yes, I'm bluff-born and heretanga raised. I've uh, had whakapapa roots into the deep south, so that's the particularly the kā te māmo e Ngāitahu side of my um, ancestry and upbringing. So I was raised um, in Hawke's Bay, but uh, my, party, my family were part of the... Um, group that go harvesting muffin birds off the islands around Stewart Island. So my childhood was um, a mixture of being in Hawke's Bay and for a couple of months every year being on those islands around Stewart Island. Um, so, But I went through schools here in Havelock North where I live now, um, done full circle through education and, and employment and come back and come back to put roots down in Hawke's Bay with, with kids here. Um, yeah, the original training was in industrial design. Well, in fact, not. I started uh, with a, a false start at Canterbury University doing forestry science because I used to spend a lot of time in the bush when I was young. It seemed logical. And then I worked out that I wasn't so logical. I was a bit more creative. So um, actually it was a careers advisor that put me on to industrial design um, by asking me a whole lot of questions about what I loved doing. And you think I could have worked it out myself when I was a bit of a tinkerer with, you know, get a toy and I'd pull it apart and work out how how, how it worked and put it back together or make something else. So I guess um, I guess my father was a was a bit of a builder and closet inventor of all kinds of gadgets. So it was a bit in the DNA probably to end up in industrial design. And um, where did you train in industrial design? So um, so I went through in the in the mid to late 1980s industrial design in the day, um, and the place to go was Wellington Polytech. So I guess the difference between now and then was course number was restricted to an intake of 15 every year. So I think you know in those days, I guess the competition was to get in the course um, rather than to get through it. Now it seems to be open the doors to everyone, and and, and cross your fingers you get through. 
So it was quite a bespoke course, I guess, when it was a four-year, what do they call it, a professional diploma. So a four-year full-time diploma just in industrial design, which is a bit different from, I guess, the training today where you go into a largely generic first year in design and maybe a couple of years of specialisation for your degree. So it was a bit more hands-on. We moved very, very fluidly between studio and workshop. So the creative process didn't have too many boundaries around it. And we didn't do a hell of a lot of writing. We certainly did a lot of presenting and making. I loved it. Can you remember um, if you had any you know, particular teachers at the time that influenced you? Uh, look, to be honest, they all did. Because um, it's quite an intimate course, you kind of get to know your lecturers quite well. And I look back and I think, you know, they, they all inspired me in different ways. Uh, Tony Parker, um, who you know had got into automotive design and things, he he was an, an incredible uh, in terms of inspiration for the level of design he'd already been involved in. Characters like Jurgen Weibel, who was um, taught us with graphics and a bit of photography. He had a, I guess, one thing I'd say he really taught me when I look back as having a as about a design eye the way he viewed the world from a designer's lens, which was kind of foreign to me at that age. The way he actually looked at things um, was always incredible. And uh, the likes of Leon Yap, who um, taught us ergonomics and anthropometrics and all sorts. Um, but, um, Mark Pennington, who was designing formway furniture then. Yeah, I mean, we had a, we had a lot of people through there, and a lot of um, you know a lot of working casual lecturers too, who who brought currency and freshness in their practice and rolled it straight in our door. They were fantastic. I don't and know if I was a student, but they were great tutors. <laughs> <laughs> so, where did you um, find yourself working then, fresh out of graduating? Well, I think the interesting thing is, um, you know, everyone talks about the impacts of COVID on the economy and and the GFC. Well, we were. We were exiting education just after the 1987 stock market crash. So when we went into design school, we were pretty much told you would get a job as you were leaving or even before you left. Um, of course, by the time we were leaving, there wasn't really much many jobs at all. I fell into a role with a um, bit of an entrepreneur and learnt really quickly on the job. Actually, When I look back, it was a fantastic experience, actually. The guy was only in his 20s. He was a bit of an entrepreneur, wheeler dealer, and um, I and 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 he pulled me under his wing. And the first real kind of, I guess, design project that I had was designing a an amusement ride called a human gyroscope, um, which we designed, um, built, franchised, licensed, all sorts of stuff. So it was straight into the deep end, including, you know, prototyping on workshops in Foxton and things. Um, in the days when there weren't too many health and safety regulations. I remember the first prototype made on big steel rings and I was strapped in with duct tape and things spinning around in a workshop in Foxton and the whole thing collapsed and I ended up slammed on a concrete floor. And it, <laughs> we, you know, we, seen, we seen, soon learnt things about like, you know, retaining plates on bearings and stuff like that. So <laughs> it, was a, it was a baptism by fire job and I actually I absolutely loved it. You know, you've kind of, you've moved into a different area of design now and, and you know, was there a kind of a point in your career that you took that, you know, fork in the path or went on a different, that different trajectory? Yeah, well, look, I think I look back through my career from design school to now, which is 30 years, so I'm a 1990 graduate out of that school, and I can just about identify it in five-year blocks um, within which some kind of opportunities arisen that has taken things in a 
different and sometimes unanticipated direction. I guess the thread that is, has been retained all of the way through that, um, I guess, was my interest in connection with Te Ao Māori. So, you know, within the Māori world and my interests in terms of both as a designer and aesthetically and things, but also in terms of actually making a difference uh, and, and the opportunity to kind of immerse in that cultural world and cultural expression. So those early years after um, after spinning around in steel hoops and landing on concrete floors, I, I flowed into the first wave of interactive exhibit design in New Zealand, which was just a new thing. So where you had museums and the emergence of new hands-on science centres was a new phenomenon because everything up to that point was kind of quite didactic and static kind of exhibitions. So, um, so logically, it was kind of a marriage, I guess, of architects and industrial designers who mostly lent into that wave. And I rode that wave for a number of years. One of my my next job after the, after the gyroscope gig um, was working on a place called Capital Discovery Place or Tiahua Maui, which was in, under the under the near the city to see bridge in Wellington. Um, so the Civic Square redevelopment was designed by Ian Athfield. Paramatchet was doing the mahi on the City to Sea Bridge um, across there, and underneath there was this Children's Hands-On Science Centre, and I got a job there, and um, I remember my first day I was introduced I was introduced to Rangi Moana Taylor and Henimo Hilliard and a few Māori alumnaries um, who were working there, and you know, I was introduced as the Māori designer. And that was a bit of a shock to me because I was a designer who was Māori, but I would not have classed myself as a Māori designer then. That was uh, an amazing experience because it threw me into a deep relationship with these um, fantastic people. And that flowed onto a few more jobs. So I went from there up to Manawatu, um, led the exhibitions um, team for the development of a new Kids Hands-On Science Centre there, working alongside the museum um, and under the sort of dual mentorship ship really of a guy, Peter Millwood, who was heading that up, who was an ex-school teacher. Um, he was a great, he, he put great confidence and trust in me to kind of seize the job and make it my own and, and shape a team around it and work out how we were going to get exhibitions on the floor by an opening day and all that stuff. So at a very young age, I was given a lot of responsibility, but with a great liberty to actually drive how that all happened. And the other the other tutelage I came under was um, the, the late Minor McKenzie from Rangitane, who was there with the museum, um, and Rangi Fitzgerald and Warren Warbrick, who were there, who, who really pulled me into the Māori world of the of the part of the museum world quite deeply. Um, and that flowed on to being the first exhibition designer appointed to develop um, Te Papa on the waterfront. So they had some of their incumbent team. I was the first one pulled into the project office for that. You know, what an exciting opportunity to be able to be at the front end of development like that. So it sounds um, like you um, kind of quite early on then for yourself found what your kind of, you know, core passion or like, you know, discovered your values there in terms of that direction and working with TR Mallory. Yeah, look, and it was, to be honest, it was my happy place. You know, you just, where you feel comfortable, where you feel like you instinctively fit, and, and, and that's it for me, was then and still is now. Fair to say, though, going through design school, that world was at odds with design culture and the way design was taught. Um, you know, I can remember a couple of things that I look back on 
one was my first, I guess, foray into a project trying to express express that side of myself. Met with a D, so it wasn't very encouraging. It wasn't very encouraging to my pursuit. Um, <laughs> it was probably a ship design too, but anyway. Um, but I remember having a conversation and design being described as acultural. Oh. And, um, <laughs> you know, you kind of think, yeah, anything but, because we were being taught a Bauhaus model of design, you know, and a Bauhaus model of education, within a Bauhaus model of education. Mm-hmm. So um, so I'd always had kind of a wee bit of a discomfort with that. It was like, you know, having to wear a shirt that doesn't quite fit right. For me, finding that comfort in, with Māori colleagues and immersing myself in that mahi and that work um, just was a happy place for me. Mm. Um, and continues to be so. That's that's the only point of. So that's the probably the only thread of continuity through everything I've done um, through design school to now. Because post uh, that exhibition kind of stuff, I've worked in interiors. I've went into <laughs> when I came back up to Hawkes Bay, I ended up in architectural work. Went from that into working with the clients more broadly. I think was a real pivot point. I can think of a couple of projects in particular. One was, I guess, um, it was sort of 2000. Um, my wife and I made the decision to uproot from Wellington and, and move up to Hawke's Bay and in doing so basically throwing in employment roles and starting up business. And so um, one of my, so I sort of worked, partnered up with Jacob Scott up here, who's, if you don't know him, he's an incredible Māori artist and architectural designer. Um, son of the late John Scott, if you know him as an architect. So when I moved up here, we sort of partnered up and did a lot of projects together. So that had a bit more of an architectural leaning with a Māori client focus. And one of the earliest projects I did here was uh, we inherit, we worked for Te Tai Whenua Hiratanga, a mana whenua organisation that um, embodies uh, an area that covers about 23 marae and developing a new um, facility. Well, it wasn't a new facility. It was an old form of DB motoring and, and converting it into health clinics and, and uh, education spaces and community conference areas and space for health and social services. So for me, that's probably one of the most pivotal projects I've had in my career um, because this, the um, the leader at the time of, of that development, Elena Watini, sort of, took me in under her wing a wee bit and entrusted me to do a whole lot of stuff that arguably I wasn't qualified for. So, you know, she was looking at the way I was working and would say things like, hey, I think you could set up this service too, you know. So beyond design, getting involved in actually a lot of the, I guess, strategy work, the the establishment of new services and, and things. So it was that opportunity uh, and I'm talking early 2000s, was the front end, I guess, of a practice we now might think of as design, you know, it's turned up as design thinking and design integration and co-design and all that. Well, we were doing it then. So I was simultaneously working on the building design with organisational strategy and vision, with brand culture and identity work, um, with the establishment of services aligned with all of that. And Jacob and I were facilitating Wānanga and the community here to gather their aspirations and visions so we could articulate that through design. For instance, the health clinics, I did everything from the physical design of the clinics to um, actually developing the operational blueprint for it to writing the job descriptions for the staff to the business plan for funding approval for a Ministry of Health pilot project. So it was the first Kaupapa Māori dental service. It was a Oranga Niho Māori dental service pilot project 
Um, and that line of work took me into a whole different bunch of territories that probably sit behind where I'm, what I do today. How would you describe um, what you do today then in terms of the, the design sphere? Um, yeah, well, it's an interesting one because um, I guess two things, because I'm quite often asked similar kind of questions because people are quite confused about what I do. So, so, so one is, I guess, is my transition, if I was to put it simply, is move from designing things to designing futures. Um, so I'm far more now at the, um, I guess, visionary and strategy end of actually forecasting and designing um, desired futures before it then cascades down into the more known tangible areas of design. So so what does that mean? So I guess, like, for instance, I'm working on a project that is part of the wider justice reform around um, kaupapa Māori pathways to and alternate models within the um, justice and correction system. So, so that's the design discipline there is very much about deep understanding of needs and gathering of insights to think about how we completely redesign the response to those needs. So that, that's everything from you know, thinking about facilities to systems to processes to culture. To, it's, a, it's a very wide sphere, but the process of exploration and discovery is the same. The tools at your disposal to respond to as designers is wider and the people that become your co-designers is wider um, than you would might normally anticipate in a, a more typical, I guess, design spheres. So, it's, um, so um, everything I do, I still consider design, but other people might look at it and go, you're doing strategy, you're doing service development, you're doing, you know, you're doing brand work. Um, so I, I still have a, so there's some areas where it's still probably design as we typically know it. I've been working with on projects like um, development of Māori export collectives for China e-commerce, um, where I'm working on everything from the formative end around partnerships and values and so on through to brand and story articulation, in one case co-designed for China with Chinese, so taking those same co-design principles into working with Chinese on on how, everything from how we language and the visuals we use to the, um, I guess, the sentiments that are expressed to the conduct in the market to how we interact. So it's quite a it's it's quite a um, quite a different approach. And do you think that's um, now that we can we kind of articulate and name all of these different you know parts of design as a whole, or you know was that a designer's role always always all of these things, but we just didn't uh, you know name them, or or do you think that the <laughs> people value design more, and so we can articulate? I think um, I think for me, I guess uh, the word design has some baggage. And I guess when I'm talking about design, you know, it can be both a noun and be a verb, um, but also design in its biggest sense is, I think, is the kind of sphere of interest we need to think about more as designers in a more typical sense, design with the capital D, the noun, because what that has looked like in the past has been evolving, I think, and changing quite quickly. And I think where that evolution sits is primarily with that more I guess visionary, strategic, and transformative ends, and increasingly, increasingly that challenges us to confront issues um, uh, around sustainability, around social responsibility. And I guess if I was to think about what is the opposite end of that design spectrum, which I'm not belittling by saying this, but it is the pure aesthetic craft end of the spectrum, and, and everything in between. So. There's still a space for the crafters whose strength is 
um, you know, and the difference between a three-degree de three angle and a 4.5-degree angle and the arras on the corner of something and the thickness of a line through to the people that are really uh, imagining things that are completely transformative and new and different. Mm. I think that's an area where, where we have a lot to offer but where it hasn't necessarily been understood or valued. And I think that's something that a lot of us have been reflecting on, you know, um, amongst COVID-19 over the last few months. So probably nicely segues into talking about um, the impact of COVID-19 on our design community and our practice. And I'd like to reflect just on kind of the immediate past and the last few months and you know, how you kind of went through lockdown and um, and then, you know, take a look at kind of, as you say, like, you know, kind of step out and look at design with a capital, capital D. So how how has your last three months been? <laughs> I, I, actually, um, it's been good, first I'll say, and, and I say that for two reasons. As, um, I've probably spent way too many years running at 100 miles an hour. And for a while, there was an imposed slowdown um, by virtue of projects slowing and pause buttons being hit on a few things. But I guess in doing that, like many others, and a lot of the commentary we're seeing is it's, it gives you that opportunity to do a wee bit of reflection and thinking and to uh, declutter a few things, including your brain a little bit, and to think about what you let in and where you want to go next. I guess in a work sense, uh, the first month of, of that, was very little change to me because um, I'm not entirely a one-man band because I collaborate with people all around the country, but for all intent and purposes, I'm a one-man band. I work from a home-based office. So that side of COVID-19 was business as usual for me, um, that I'm already geared up to be able to work from home. The difference is um, I wasn't jumping on planes every week or multiple times a week, and I loved that, quite used to moving around the country a fair bit and uh, over the years, been doing quite a bit of work offshore as well. So the opportunity to just uh, stop and take stock has been really good. In terms of the, I guess, work volume and impacts on that, for me, I'd describe it to somebody being a bit like the tsunami scenario, you know, that like you're standing on the beach and you suddenly realise the city's retreating away from you. And there's this kind of quiet, empty space has opened up in front of you for a wee bit. <laughs> And you're kind of scratching your head a little, but then you start to see that looming wall of water coming back at you from the horizon, which is <laughs> which is what it's been like for me. Is um, there was that moment of openness and relaxation, and then suddenly it's full force again. Um, mm. There's a there's a sudden surge because everyone now has a sense of urgency about mm. getting on getting back on track uh, or getting things going, or the that you know those. Businesses that now have a need to rethink and pivot and need that support. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so my sense at the moment is um, that that kind of demand is really high. How do you think that we hold on to these learnings, though, you know, even just from that day-to-day -day, um, point of view and yourself, as you say, hopping on, on planes, um, you know, can you swap out the hopping on planes um, to do more online or... Is there that need to be in person with um, co-design? I think maybe what it is is I, I, I'm not such a binary thinker or I give you such a binary answer <laughs> on that because I think the thing is is they both have their place and space. Yeah. Um, but maybe what it's forced us to do is to be more mindful of that. Like, do I really need mm. a face-to-face -face for this? 
could we do this via Zoom or or some other means? Um, there's probably some things I've done at times on a plane <laughs> that involve a plane ride that didn't need to. But I think it would be folly to think that anything online can replace human interaction yeah. in all of its dimensions. And particularly for the work I do, which is primarily, I guess, under that label that you might use of co-design, that it's highly collaborative uh, and working with people in sometimes quite deeply immersive environments through modes of wānanga and stuff. Um, nothing online can replace the multi-dimensional stuff that goes on when you're in spaces like that um, because there is relational things going on. There is um, there's physical interaction, but it's also intellectual and emotional and spiritual and that, that cannot be re- replicated through a computer. Uh, and I think uh, sometimes I would say actually that's the stuff that's actually quite often missing too often from design practice, that designers can not all, but can have a tendency to work too much in isolation and remotely and don't have that sense of connection and relationship with clients or projects that perhaps they should to be generating deeper insights into what they're doing and therefore more savvy responses. And Zoom doesn't quite, can't quite achieve that, I don't think. Yeah. And um, were you, are you kind of going to consider taking less on to stay less busy or do you like being busy? <laughs> Um, well, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question. I mean, I, I, I guess like a lot of our people in, uh, doing what we do is it's project by project and demand is not always predictable. So there's a fair degree of that which is out of your control. And if you are making your own way, not an employee, now there's a balance between, hey, I'm really, really busy, I'm flat out, and I might be getting a wee bit stressed from overwork, but hey, the bank's healthy. Yeah. Or, hey, geez, I'm quite relaxed because I don't have that much work at the moment. Now I've got financial stress. <laughs> you know? so, so I would say that's a perpetual challenge for a lot of people, just balancing, you know, how much time you're investing, what that, what your needs might be in terms of income. Um, but also with, I guess, that pursuit of passion and having fun in the process. So I, I'm not driven. Um, I, make, I, I think I could say I make a comfortable living out of what I do. Uh, but that's not what drives me. Um, I'm far more cause-driven. Yeah. So I tend to migrate and be attracted to projects where I think there's a really compelling cause that can make an impactful difference mm. somewhere, somehow. And for me, the majority of that work is around Māori enterprise and uh, enterprise development, whether that's commercial enterprise or social enterprise. Mm. To zoom out and, like, you know, take a kind of helicopter view of design with a capital D... Yep. You know, there has there was a lot of talk, kind of I think more so in in lockdown about this post-COVID world and a new normal, which potentially at the moment have kind of dissipated as people return to um, business as usual. But um, what do these concepts mean to you, and and how have you been thinking about them? Um, look, I, I I think for me, um, what has happened is it's changed the biggest change is people's mindset. That mindset changed to me probably, you know, the hallmarks of that are, you know, the sort of words that Jacinda uses about, you know, being strong but kind and things like that. And I guess my sense of the way people have responded here is the people have extended the hand of support. They've offered to be there to talk. They've found some 
space for goodwill, you know, to extend your skills in a way that can offer support and help. And it shouldn't take it shouldn't take a pandemic for us to think <laughs> and act like that. You know, I've seen it happen a few times that um you know, with the Rue Whenua, with the earthquake in Christchurch, um, that they've got, you know, they're probably they're probably the closest to having been through this before. And what it did was, um, you know, you kind of find there is for for a while there is chaos. People don't quite know what to do, and within that, some people fall into inertia, and some people rise, and some people thrive on rolling their sleeves up and mucking in. The thing is, is what you end up with is a whole chaos of mucking in with people delivering a whole heap of well-considered solutions that may or may not be needed or have uptake or the moment for their usability is fleeting. So there'll be this flurry of activity that generates a lot of stuff, some of which will stick. But when kind of the dust settles, it's those ones that will endure and start to drive some permanent change and shifts. So like in Christchurch, one thing I observed is, um, you know, sort of the decentralisation of a lot of stuff out to the suburbs, um, which now can't re-centralise because it's become, it's invigorated the suburbs and and put down roots again. And what you saw is the wave of people's support for one another roll into a new set of attitudes and behaviours, more collaborative, more considerate of others. Some of that has then turned up in how businesses have partnered or they've responded differently to the needs of the community. Um, but like I say, it shouldn't take a crisis mm. to think and feel like that, to actually think, yes, there's more benefit from us acting together than acting alone. Um, there is always an opportunity to do things in different and better ways, which we might have been stuck in. That's the old, that's the old adage about the burning platform. Yeah. Um, if the platform's not burning, you don't need to do anything. If it is, you've got to do something. So I think while people are compelled to do something and change is imposed on us, it's also the right moment to kind of seize the opportunity for change. And that's where I think designers potentially can play a really, really valuable role in that reimagining and recasting and rebuilding and redesigning and reframing um, what that different and better future could or should look like where the opportunity exists to do it because that opportunity doesn't hang around for too long after something like this. I think we'd seen um, prior to this the seeds of, um, you know, planet-centric design, circular design, and then also people-centred design, user-centred design. So I feel like there was some momentum there um, and I think potentially that's where it's interesting is then, you know, an event like this hopefully accelerates um, that change. Yeah, look, and I think they are they are all, I'll call them movements, they're, they're all movements that have uh, had a genesis of some sort that has driven them, that has responded to some kind of needs at the time. You know, design thinking landed here in 2003 through the government's growth and innovation framework, which which saw the establishment of the Better by Design program with NZTE and growth and innovation pilot projects through TEC, which I was um, one of the groups that picked up a project on that. And we were in pursuit of the co-pipa around um, how do we use Māori design um, culture and creativity to stimulate and drive economic development, Māori economic development. Um, 
and it was a and it was that was a hell of a leap at the time um, for an economy or for businesses to actually see any value in design in that way. Typically, design has something that's sat on their profit and loss sheets on the expenditure column, not an investment. So that shift in mindset to see design as a strategic asset, as something that you invest in because of the return you will get from it, um, is quite as a quite recent shift of mindset from business um, to just seeing design as a service that sits there on your P&L as an expense. So that the way that was driven, um, I guess, was on the simple tenet that if you understood your users' needs and responded to them well, you could sell more. Um, that's what we need to change, isn't it? That yeah, so that, selling so that more. Change. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, I look back now and I guess with a critical eye on design practice and go, actually, you know, the problems that we're talking about now with climate change and plastics mm-hmm. and sustainability, actually we've been part of the problem, not the solution yeah. to, at large. We've been the proliferators of consumerism. You know, we've, we've been hired, the hired hands to help people sell more, to gain more advantage, to sell new stuff. And so we've been, we've been part of that, that proliferation. Now, I guess, we've got a new sense of responsibility that actually says, no, that's not good, <laughs> that actually then we need to be mindful of environmental impact. So the design thinking, yeah, it came out of that user-centred, uh, human-centred design philosophy, but within its DNA was not environmental considerations. So, you know, things like circular design, to me, the emergence of that is, is the reaction to that. It's, it's the reaction that says, actually, there are environmental agenda that we haven't been considering that we need to. But again, it's been, in my view, similarly, similarly short-sighted because these aren't mutually exclusive concepts. They're all part of a whole system so from a Māori worldview, all humans are descendants from the same Atua um, that are the deities of the environment, um, and that are the progenitors of all the other species that are our cohabitants on this planet. You can't divorce them. Mm. So you can't think about people without thinking about planet uh, and, and vice versa. So I don't, we're not there yet. You know, we've, we've had a few movements. We've had human-centred design. We've had circular design. Uh, and lots of peripheral endeavours to land a model or a system or an approach or a process um, to deliver a new a new way of looking and acting and thinking. What I don't think we've done as New Zealanders, as Kiwis, underpinned um, with Mataranga Māori, is actually stepped back and went, well, what's our model look like? Because it is we have different sensibilities. Um, and I think actually the sensibilities that are wired into the Kiwi DNA underpinned by um, uh, underpinned by Māori DNA actually has the solutions and the answers in there, but we haven't given that level of investment to articulating them and you know doing what others do quite well, which is package package them into proprietary models with rhetoric that give them currency. Um, I'm I'm always wary and cautious of of the rhetoric and 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 the and the modelling that can be little, kind of be little the intent, but also can drive a degree of evangelical fervour about some of these movements. Mm. And how do you think it's, you know, it's different from, so we've had the 1987 stock market crash, 
you know, the global financial crash, even Christchurch, like this kind of building wave upon wave um, in terms of systemic change. Can Is it different this time or, or do you think we may go slip back? I think it's dif- different this time because the impacts are global. So we're not only looking at this from uh, an introspective view, we're actually looking at what's going on in the world. And I guess I would hope as New Zealanders, we're very, very encouraged by the picture we see in terms of what it says about us. So I guess many of those attributes that we might see as quite Kiwi, that I'd say arguably are just about always underpinned with Māori sensibility, so concepts like manaki, you know, that, that sort of rise to the surface. So I think about, you know, or reflect back another event, <laughs> amazing the last year, but if I was look, to look back at the mosque attacks, mm. um, people people are looking for a way to um, make sense of things and to respond and react and to care. And quite often it's Māori sensibility finds, kind of seems to guide the way a little bit. So, you know, there's a reason everybody grabs onto a catch cry like kia kaha. You know, when we get an Australian Prime Minister saying kia kaha New Zealand, we know we're kind of getting reach. And Naito were really quiet carers through all of that, both the both the Rufenua, both the earthquake and then the mosque attacks. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and I, my sense is now as New Zealanders, the way we are responding to COVID through those things like care and kindness and extension of goodwill and a degree of compliance and so on, actually they're expressions of values that were already there, but they've been amped up, you know, with the sort of the mixing desk, they're all being pushed up to the top. So things like, um, you know, manaki, um, treating others with respect and dignity and care and hospitality suddenly is we're more conscious of. It was there, but Mm. we've now expressed it more mm. and so how, I, I think it's how how we how we carry that back into uh, into our day-to-day um is you know we I guess we're yet to see but I I would hope that the, that's part of the residual impact of things like this and how do you see you know the re- role and the responsibility of the designer going forward you know kind of having been or and going through this and um how do we take these learnings forward long-term to make change? I think there's a couple of really useful, simple principles in there. So, you know, actually questioning how what you do is good for others and good for the planet. You know, is, is it actually contributing? Are, are you doing stuff which is being part of the problem or are you doing stuff which is being part of the solution? Mm-hmm. Do you think um, that designers should, you know, um, put it out there and make this statement and this promise as part of their practices, individuals and studios. Does that um, have value? Yeah, or? Look, look, absolutely, absolutely. Look, I, th- I think ironically for a creative sector, we, we seem to get a bit stuck in our ways and, and I'm seeing other sectors that have transformed in that regard quicker. You know, um, a good part of our design community was involved in the recent endeavour within tourism, that Tiaki promise campaign that um, DesignWorks and others were in, involved in. You know, and that's um, that's the tourism sector asking something of visitors but also making a pledge to itself, yeah. a, a pledge of care for people, in, for people in place. I don't really see that kind of, you know, we're a bit of an incongruous sector 
Yeah. I don't really see us acting that way. So, yeah, I, absolutely. I, I think we should be more forward in actually putting forward notions and statements about who we think we are, should be, could be. Um, something to something to espouse and something to aspire to. And um, finally, just to end with um, some words of wisdom that you'd like to share with designers and creatives out there right now. I don't know whether I have too many words of wisdom, but <laughs> um, but I guess something that is dear to my heart by virtue of the work I do. Fair to say, all of my work is either with Māori or with others in Māori interests. And a lot of those others, I'm I'm working a lot with um, creative agencies and um, wider parts of our design sector and with government agencies and things who have an appetite to kind of wrestle with this identity um, stuff in terms of what it means to be Kiwis and what the role Māori culture plays in that. And I'm often the guy who's trying to navigate um, somewhere in the middle. So I, I guess words of wisdom there are kind of, you know, just really lean in and engage. So don't sit back, don't isolate. The only way we can kind of, the only kind of way we evolve is together. Mm. Evolution doesn't happen on a desk. Thanks, Carl. Thank you for your time today. It's been great to hear some of your background, where you've come from, and um, have a discussion and, and hear your reflections on um, COVID-19 and Aotearoa New Zealand design practice. Thank you. Yeah, and I have to say it's, um, I think, through COVID-19, one of the touchstones was seeing um, seeing the Design Assembly LinkedIn posts uh, there all the time as kind of something to engage with and, and, and to actually hear and see what's going on in our creative community. Um, so, you know, keep up the good work there too. Thanks, Carl.